Welcome to the Jack Jones and Martin Warner Show. Today we're talking about possibly one of the most important books to come out this year. It's called Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Yeah, so it's all about addiction and the balance between pain and pleasure. And we've got someone who's a lecturer at Stanford University, who's the author of the book, and she goes into the science behind it. And you're also a psychologist, right? Anna Lebke, everyone. Welcome. Yes, yes. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm thrilled that you're interested in this topic. Um, That's exciting. And yes, I am a psychiatrist. So psychiatrist versus psychologist, most people don't pay much attention to it, and it doesn't really matter. But a psychiatrist is someone who's actually gone to medical school and has an MD and can prescribe meds. Because I was going to ask you about the dopamine effect, which we'll get onto uh, when you have a dopamine uh, diets to get off your dopamine hit, which we'll yeah, get dopamine into. Fasting. Yes, yeah, we you're, can, talk about, we can yeah. talk about that. And actually, whether that's positive, negative, and you'll know the science behind yeah. it. This is going to be a yeah. great chat. I'm, I mean, what I love about your book is that it comes from a very honest place and you were addicted to erotic fiction, right? Yes. So, well, I, I usually call it romance novels, but erotic fiction is very <laughs> fair. I did progress over time to erotic fiction. Um, something that I never imagined. And yeah, I I was essentially addicted. So I went from, you know, uh, the Twilight Saga, a teenage romance series for teenagers, to very graphic erotic fiction, which was essentially, you know, socially sanctioned pornography for women. Yeah, it's fascinating. And so what at what point yeah I'm kind of dumbfounded I rendered rendered you speechless it's just such an open was that hard to share that yes yes even now I get like a flushing reaction of shame when I when I say that (laughs) it is it's amazingly hard yeah but we we live in such an open society right even today there's there's certain subjects that could just stop the room right even even now money and (laughs) pornography in pretty much any form yeah it's almost like the uh when we talk about addiction you think about like drugs or alcoholism right and um there have been people in the press that talk about pornography addiction the most famous one for me was kurt franklin and then i think terry cruz spoke Uh about it a bit Uh and but it feels like if you haven't got a taboo or like something of like tangible like that. It, whereas I would, I was trying to wrap my brain, think about what I'm actually addicted to. And I don't have something as visible as that. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. I would say I'm reasonably addicted to my phone, which I feel uh-huh. like yeah. the general yeah. human condition right. at the moment is. You're right. But, Join the human race. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but is it, would you say we're all addicted to something in some form in your experience? Well, what uh, you know, what my book Dopamine Nation essentially posits is that we're living in a time when we've all become vulnerable to the product problem of addiction. The reason for that is because for the first time in human history, we are surrounded by overwhelming overabundance. Um, we've got 24/7 access to all kinds of highly rewarding substances and behaviors. And our primitive brains essentially weren't evolved for this kind of world. Our our primitive brains were evolved for a world of scarcity and ever-present danger, which is the world that we've essentially lived in for for most of humanity. But now we're really at this tipping point when, yes, I would say that um, most of us are struggling with some kind of minor, if not major, addiction. What is the science that actually happens in your brain when you become addicted to something? So the best way to understand this is to recognize that pain and pleasure are co-located in the brain. And what that means is that the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain, and they work like opposite sides of a balance. So when we do something pleasurable, that balance tips one way. When we do something painful, it tips the opposite way. Um, So let's say, for example, I you know, read a romance novel, right? So that for me is, that's a drug of choice for me. And people are different in what will tip their balance, you know, to the side of pleasure or pain. But for me, that's, that's a drug of choice, as is relationships and attachment in general. And that releases dopamine in a part of my brain called the reward pathway. And dopamine is a neurotransmitter. It's one of the most important neurotransmitters in the experience of motivation, pleasure, and reward. But no sooner has my pleasure-pain balance t- tipped to the side of pleasure than 
my brain starts to adapt to the presence of increased dopamine levels. And it does that by downregulating my own dopamine receptors and my own dopamine transmission. But here's the really important piece. It doesn't just downregulate dopamine back to tonic baseline levels. It actually lowers dopamine levels below baseline. So we enter this little mini dopamine deficit state after any increase in dopamine. Now, it, it only lasts for a while, and then our dopamine starts to regenerate, and we go, we go back to our, our baseline levels, you know, as long as we, we wait long enough in between using our drug of choice. But um, if we repeat use of our addictive drug of choice, the second time around, that dopamine release in response is shorter and less, but the after response, that dopamine deficit state is stronger and longer. And if we continue to use our drug repeatedly over days to weeks to months to years, we ultimately end up in a chronic dopamine deficit state. And that means that we are walking around experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal when we're not using our drug. And those are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. Now we need to use our drug not to get high or feel good, but essentially just to bring us back up to baseline, just to feel normal. And when we're not using our drug, nothing else is interesting. And things that used to be interesting are no longer interesting because we can't counteract that dopamine deficit state. And that is essentially addiction. That is why people who have been in recovery for a period of time and so much in their lives or better relapse. It's because they're not walking around with a level balance. They're walking around in a dopamine deficit state where every day is a struggle because they're experiencing those universal symptoms of withdrawal and intense craving, and it's all they can do not to use. Um, so, so essentially that's what's happening in the brain. I, I'm going to throw one out there, but it's not as good as Anna's, but, but, I, but I'm addicted to cigars. Okay, there you go. Um, and, and <laughs> Anna was waiting for that. <laughs> I know, it's like, really? Between the two of you, we need something here. I know, I know. It's, it's weird that all of a sudden we live, we live in this perfect harmony right. of balance and there's nothing, there's no addiction. But it's not true. And, and that um, I, I'm pretty uh, critical with my life and, and how I want to lead it and what I want to you know, share with my kids, etc., and 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 hopefully set an example that makes sense. But I've struggled. I've struggled with cigar smoking, which started years ago, and and what you described is precisely uh, how I would analyze uh, uh, you know, my, my situation. I don't get uh, so much irritable, but I notice a change in, in myself, and so I, I I have to kind of restore that balance. And but but there's an interesting question I've always had for myself, and I have quit for a while and, and, and then come back to it is that I get a lot of pleasure mm -hmm. and perhaps not the same level of pleasure so I'm, I'm, I'm it's almost like it's almost like I've, I'm, I'm, I've got no choice now but to increase the level yes. uh, of, of cigar smoking in order to get some level of, of same is that to uh, feel the buzz from the cigar you have to smoke more on a physical level I don't know if it's a, 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 a buzz or, or the same feeling or realisation yeah. that, that I remembered mm -hmm. that I used to get from cigars. Mm -hmm. And obviously my life has got more complex. I travel more. I've got an awful lot more in my mm -hmm. life. Um, you know, now uh, instead of that wonderful occasion where you, you, sip, you, you sip a drink and have a cigar, you know, I'll be exercising and smoking around the park. Now that doesn't look good. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. He's going for a jog. I love it. I'm lighting up a cigar and people look at me like, geez, this guy's got issues, right? But I'm still, I'm still enjoying it, but I, I'm clearly absorbing more. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and so, so, so I think you articulate it really well. But, but I think there's a thin line between pain and mm -hmm. pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's that it doesn't matter whether I'm feeling stressed or feeling happy. I just enjoy smoking. So let's deconstruct that a little bit because uh, you're touching on a lot of great points. First, first of all, you're touching on the issue of tolerance and how with repeated exposure over time, we need more and more or more potent forms to get the same effect. And it sounds like for right. you, one of the ways you increase potency is to exercise right before you smoke. And 
you know, that's probably, you know, increasing your cardiovascular output so that when you do smoke, you lay out that nicotine on a much larger, um, you know, area of lung alveoli. So the uptake to your brain is faster. And that's a very common strategy for increasing potency is to combine two drugs together. In your case, exercise and smoking. As I talk about in my book, um, my patient who who create, you know, he built a masturbation machine. He was addicted to, to sex and he combined cigarette smoking with masturbating. And he, you know, he found that that was a way to increase potency. So these are all things that we do. For me, it might be eating chocolate at the same time that I'm reading. But, but the, the, the larger point here is that what is very insidious about this process, about addiction, and what you call that sort of fine line between pleasure and pain, is that it's very easy to get to a point where it feels like we are just seeking pleasure, which in and of itself can seem quite innocent, but actually what we're doing is avoiding pain, and we're avoiding a pain that has been driven by that initial exposure to pleasure. One way to think about this is to think about a metaphor of a balance. Imagine that in your balance there's a brain like a teeter-totter in a playground, and this is the pleasure-pain balance, okay? And when we do something pleasurable, it tips the side of pleasure, but no sooner does that happen than these little gremlins hop on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But the gremlins really like it on the balance, so they stay on until you're tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. Now, if you wait long enough, the gremlins hop off and a level balance or homeostasis is restored. But if you repeatedly use your drug again and again, you essentially accumulate so many gremlins on the pain side of the balance that they're camping out there. Now you need exercise plus your cigar to get the same effect, right? And if you just smoke a plain old cigar, your gremlins are tipping you to the side of balance and you're dysphoric, you're irritable, but you're not necessarily consciously aware of that, which is why we need these sustained periods of abstinence to allow those gremlins to hop off, to allow normal dopamine levels to be restored so that we can enjoy maybe just one cigar without having to exercise or other more modest pleasures. So that's the tricky part is that very quickly that pursuit of pleasure through intoxicants, which I use very broadly, can drive down our, our hedonic set point. Is it a problem if, you're, if, you, if Martin wasn't bothered, Anna, is it, do we have to call it something so negative as an addiction in terms of, like, could he just leave it? Or would you advise everyone to keep themselves in some sort of balance? Yeah, so that's fair. I mean, you know, let's, you know, this is not, it is not my position that people should avoid all pleasure, even avoid all intoxicants. Um, But, but what I'm trying to communicate is how quickly and subtly um, recreational use can slip into addictive use far outside of our conscious awareness. Um, And then we, our brain finds all kinds of ways to rationalize why what we're doing now is exactly the same as what we were doing when we were using recreationally in an innocent way. But really, it's different. Now it's different. Our brains are different. Our relationship with that substance has changed. Um, it has had negative impact you know, on our lives, which we don't really fully want to look at in a clear-eyed way. So, so I guess that's, that's how I would answer that. Does that answer your question, Jack? Yeah. <laughs> Basically, uh, are there any you know, positive forms of addiction um, that perhaps are outside increased levels of dopamine that we like? For instance, I'd say I'm addicted to my work, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and I'm addicted to learning, yeah. um, and and I become extremely unsettled if I'm not uh, um, at least believing that I'm delivering incremental progress, mm-hmm. a concept that I've studied for years. Yeah. I, I, I hate latency. I hate static right. positions. Uh, my brain's hyperactive. So I, I, I struggle with sleep. But if I'm, if I, another way of, of keeping myself level is that I'm mm-hmm. learning and, yeah. or, I, or, I'm, or I'm, making, I'm making some form of decision that I at least myself believe is important. And so I go, oh, wow, I feel good. And by the way, I can substitute that learning for cigar smoking. Of course, yeah, right. Nice. Isn't that strange? Isn't that yeah, strange? Yeah. yeah, here's something cool. Learning releases dopamine, and it's a, it's a healthy yeah. and adaptive form of dopamine release. And there are other also other healthy sources of dopamine. So it's not that all do- dopamine is bad, or even that all obsessions are bad, or all fascinations or interests are bad. 
when essentially we, we call them bad when they cross the line from being adaptive and healthy to having negative consequences, either for ourselves or others. And importantly, with addiction, those negative consequences can be so subtle that we don't see them and only others do, or maybe even nobody sees them, but they're incrementally mounting. So just to describe some you know, fascinating neuroscience, if you take a rat and you expose it to a complex maze, you know, the, a very large maze with lots of interesting, cool places to, to check out, um, and then you examine that, that rat's brain after it's explored the maze, what you see is the same arborization of dopamine neurons in the brain's reward pathway as you do when you expose that rat to methamphetamine or cocaine. So it's a very potent, very um, wonderful source of dopamine. But here's a fascinating experiment. They took those same, that same maze and then they took a, a group of rats and they exposed them first to methamphetamine and then they put them in the maze. And what they found is that when those rats were first exposed to methamphetamine and then released in the complex maze, there was no additional change in their brain. There was no, mm. there, so there was the arborization of dopamine mm. neurons as a result of methamphetamine, but nothing additional after they explored the maze, which suggests that when our brains are exposed to very potent intoxicants like methamphetamine, it actually inhibits our ability. That's so to interesting. Learn. Wow. Right? I see that at a very primitive level. I've just, my daughter's 13 months now. There's the screen time debate for babies mm -hmm. and um, removing all judgment, um, speaking just openly. You kind of see where kids watch telly more, they're less interested in books. Why would they? Yeah, because it's right, colorful and it's punchy. Of course. And whereas if yeah. you lower the, I assume it's the same where you lower the dopamine hit by and they read first. Yes. Then they're more interested in that and don't and it's that's gives them the kick they need, right? Absolutely. You've hit on the essential point that pleasure and pain really are all relative. And that if, you know, you there was this idea here in the United States too, one child, one laptop, we were gonna revolutionize learning, you know every baby was going to become a baby Einstein. And what we're realizing now, which we really should have realized initially, frankly, was that the medium itself is so stimulating and so reinforcing and so addictive that it's like giving your kid a shot of methamphetamine. They're not going to learn much beyond just being hooked by the medium, which is why I really feel strongly that children below the age of about 10 or 12 should not have their own devices. Mm. And when they do look at screen Screens. It should be in very limited quantity and duration and highly supervised because they do not yet have the neurological development to be able to parse out what online is healthy and good and what isn't. I would argue at 10 or 12 whether they really have the neurological <laughs> right. development to make those decisions anyway. I agree with you. But here's the deal. Yeah. As a mother of four teenagers, I can tell you once they get to be 12, they're, you don't have they're any gone. control anymore. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's over. <laughs> so it's so important that prior to that point where we as parents essentially lose control, and let me tell you, it's amazingly early now in this digital age, we, we have yep. to make sure that we help them build other better coping strategies that we foster in real life friendship networks that we teach them about the pleasure pain balance and about addiction and about the fact that these digital activities are inherently addictive and have engine been engineered to be addictive which again doesn't make them all bad it's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater but it's like hey if you're going to do this be aware of you know the potential dangers isn't it isn't it surprising that when so I'm turning 50 soon, and when I look back, I think to myself, there was just much less distraction, right? Yeah. We didn't have technology that played our, our senses, and uh, you, you could imagine. I mean, there was Atari, right? There were a couple of primitive computer right. games. This, this is when, if I wasn't so insecure, I'd say, Look, I'm also doing some cool things with my <laughs> life rather than the fact that all I've got are these dating, these dating instruments. But I remember sitting in front of the TV playing Pac Man. And, and my mum's saying, that's enough screen time. I was, oh my God, I was like eight, nine years yeah. old. And all I wanted to do was, was, was cycle the clock, right? Because yeah. you could break the clock. And, 
and I was addicted, right? right? But and 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 now what these poor kids have got devices in every day on you know on your wrist, in your hand, in front of your face. It's insane. So now we 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 have an enormous amount of distractions while we're raising kids in this kind of in the Western world in this really sensitive age, and and it's not surprising that they're having trouble with with coping. I I agree absolutely. Their chemistry is out of balance and they don't even have to take hard drugs. Do you think, though, we will adapt? You know, like you were talking about methamphetamine, right? And in the uh, learning or like completing the maze isn't as powerful a hit for the rat and learning is... Would would our kids or just generations to come, would they not just adapt where the screen time doesn't have as much of an effect for them? And then, like, it would that will feel like learning at some point or do you think it will just <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's a great question right i mean i i've i've, I've sort of contemplated this too like that like you know gen zers they're sort of cybernetically enhanced yeah. you know what i mean like they've got they're just it's sort of like yeah. you know it's sort of like that's just their life yeah Right. And, and so, and we're, and what's so amazing about humans is our, our brain plasticity and our ability to adapt to so many different situations. But I do believe firmly that part of that adaptation process will require recognizing that we are becoming addictive, that these are addictive uh, products and, and learning moderation and restraint, you know, and, and the thing is, you know, the Gen, Gen Zers, I mean, I think they're, they're onto that, right? They're already talking and thinking about, gee, you know, I don't want to spend my whole life on my phone or I don't want my only friends to be through social media. And they're sort of beginning to make these, these changes. And, and Jax, you can probably speak to that too from, from you know, your generation. Yeah. But, but there is always going to be a subset of individuals who are more vulnerable, who are just going to fall into it like a black hole and not be able to get out. And those people, you know, they are, we need to take care of those people too. Oh, I've got a few questions here. I need to get them out one by one. Okay. How do you know you're addicted to something? Okay. The things to look for are the four C's, control, compulsion, craving, and consequences. And those are sort of self-explanatory, but I'll quickly explain them. Control means using more than you thought you would or plan to or for a longer period of time. Um, Compulsion means a lot of your mental real estate occupied with thinking about using the drug, hiding using the drug, getting your next fix of the drug, a level of automaticity outside of your control. Craving is intrusive thoughts of wanting to use a drug. And these can be also physical, kind of, you know, sweating and gut-wrenching, wanting it um, in the moment. And then consequences is probably the hallmark of addiction, especially continued use despite consequences. So we're having all kinds of problems, even if we're just neglecting other things that we need to be doing, but we're still using and we can't Mm. cut back even when we want to. So those are key features that people should look for. And it's not an all or nothing. I mean, we all have problems with compulsive overconsumption, right? But we're looking for those sort of the four C's when people are tripping into really more significant um, involuntary addictive use. To me, that was one of the fascinating things that I discovered about myself after I, you know, tr- stopped. The thing, I- the thing. Yeah. The thing, the, the thing, thing right, that I do that I got addicted to. And after I stopped <laughs> it for a month, um, you know, I all of a sudden, like my husband was more interesting to me again and my kids were more interesting and my my work was more interesting. So it was really it was fascinating to me, even with all of my knowledge about addiction, how my drug of choice had really hijacked, you know, my pleasure center so that sure. other things seemed uninteresting. And I hear that so many times in my patients, they'll say, oh, I don't like my life. I don't, you know, a, a college students, I, I don't like what I'm majoring in. Nothing's interesting. Everything is boring. Mm-hmm. They'll say, I can't find my passion. And I'll say, well, your passion has essentially been hijacked by cannabis, by pornography, by video games. If you give those up for a period of time, you will get your passion back. Sounds like you have to have a lot of self-awareness to know you're addicted to something. Well, you, yeah. So here's the deal. Most people don't have that. That's what I'm saying. Like that. Yeah. I, for so you, for example, as a highly trained individual, yeah. like, uh, and you know how to identify this stuff, you yeah. still got addicted to something. How yes, long were you amazing. addicted to? How long were you in that period for before you noticed? 
You know, it's funny. When I try to think about the timeline, it's incredibly vague to me, which speaks to something important about addiction. We kind of lose our sense of time when we're in our addiction. But I think it was over the course of about a year and a half or two years before I realized. And I'll tell you, the the way that I realized was in part talking about it to somebody else, which I talk about in the book. But the, 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 real, the real thing that made me go, oh my God, I was really addicted, was when I stopped. It was stopping and how difficult it was for me that really opened to my eyes. Because I was kind of joking about it. Oh, yeah. you know, like I'm kind of addicted to romance novels. Oh, I'm kind of reading, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey. I get sort of weird up to two in the morning. Ha ha, you know. But when I actually tried to stop that behavior and found I was like unable to fall asleep, that there was really a physiologic change. Um, and also after four weeks after I got through the initial withdrawal, kind of looking back and going, wow, that was kind of crazy. Mm. So that's why I think that dopamine fast is so key. It's almost like people could test. That's how you test if you're addicted. You come it off is. it for a bit yep. and then not, see if you've got the four C's. Yep. Yeah. 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 And also listening to the people around us because other people will see it before we will see it. You know, they'll be like, no, oh, for sure. I think you got a problem there. It, 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 it's strange though because I think that the more extreme the addiction I think that you have to be pretty stupid to not know that you've got something wrong because you you mentioned something earlier and that you know, the quality of your life will change. Yeah. yeah. Right. So you be, you become so myopically focused on trying to uh, uh, attain, maintain whatever is that, that addiction that you lose either the quality of relationships, yeah. you deprioritize your interests, and you know it goes yeah. on. And at this point. You're living in a box. Mm-hmm. You're living in a different box to other yeah. people. And, and, and I see it all the time I mean, because the truth of the matter is everyone's dealing with something. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so the challenge is, even if you're aware, what can people do? I mean, I know people check themselves into clinics. They talk to family, but they have interventions. There's all these different tools, I guess, available because – I think awareness isn't enough. I think people are aware that if they're in, like I'm aware, I'm aware that if I don't want to get nagged anymore, I'll go and have a private cigar. <laughs> so the challenge is that I'm very aware. Yeah. And, and it, 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 took, it took cancer one time, a skin cancer, to make me so scared right. that I thought, Jesus, they said, you're, 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 it's not going to heal if you're smoking. Right. I'm like, what do you mean not going to heal? And, and, and I thought, okay. And I quit for five right. months. And I thought, great, you know. And so for me, the tool was: Do you want to die, or do you want things to get a lot <laughs> right, worse? Right. And I thought, I thought, I'm not that yeah. old. I don't want to die yet. But, but my point is: What do you do once you've got some level of awareness? Or have you explored that side of if you can't get yourself back to a balance? Right. What do you, what actions do you take? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, let, let me first say that, you know, addiction is a spectrum disorder. You know, there's a range of addictions and there are people with severe addictions who are fully aware of their addiction, want to stop and are not able to, or at least not able to do it on their own. So I think it's important to acknowledge that the, the dopamine fast that I recommend in my book, and I'll talk about that in a second, because that's what I did, um, is not for everybody. Um, you know, there are people who have tried and failed repeatedly to stop using, and they're just not able to do it. And in those cases, what I essentially recommend is that they engage in you know, medical treatment, a higher level of care, medications, psychotherapy, group and individual. Sometimes people need to go to a rehab. Um, You know, there's all all kinds of jokes uh, about rehabs, but as, you know, an addiction medicine psychiatrist, I'm really grateful for rehabs because it can be life-saving for some patients who cannot stop on their own. I remember I had a patient call me saying, I'm surrounded by empty, empty bottles, um, I know if I keep drinking, I'm going to die, but I just can't stop, you know, help me. So uh, I think your point is really, really good. This is not just about people being in denial and not recognizing. Um, yeah. And if they recognized it, then they would stop and, it, you know, everything's hunky-dory. Not at all. I mean, the the viciousness of the disease of addiction manifests itself all the time. And people who know they're addicted want to stop, would give anything to stop and are not able to without help from others. Now, the good news is if they do reach out for help and they do engage in treatment, um, you know, treatment works. About 50% of folks who engage in treatment will get better. Um, and it really doesn't matter kind of which evidence-based treatment. There are lots of different types, lots of ways to the top of the mountain. So, but it's the point is to just give it over and, and, and engage in treatment. 
for folks like me who are just a little bit addicted, um, you know, the thing to do, I think the first thing to do is to fast from our drug of choice for 30 days. Why 30 days? Because it's about the minimum amount of time the brain needs to restore dopamine reward pathways. And dopamine is the final common pathway for any addictive drug or behavior, no matter what it is. So sometimes patients will say, well, can't I just you know, give up cannabis, but keep smoking cigarettes. It's like, well, you could, but ideally, you know, you would quit it all at once because anytime you're priming that dopamine reward system, you're not allowing your brain to restore healthy dopamine levels and regenerate dopamine levels. But a dopamine fast will do that. So ideally, you know, you kind of give up all of the drugs for that period. And what, what I warn people about is in the first two weeks, they'll feel worse before they'll feel better. Why? Because their balance will no longer have something on the pleasure side, but all those gremlins on the pain side, tipping it down, they'll be irritable, anxious, dysphoric, and they'll have intrusive thoughts of their drug of wanting to use and all the reasons why it's okay. But if you, we can just get through those first couple of weeks and get to week three and four, what happens is the gremlins start to hop off dopamine levels start to restore themselves, and, and we're, we're free, or at least more free from intense craving, more able to take pleasure in more modest rewards, and, and mood and anxiety and sleep and all that starts to improve. Then when we get to that four-week point, it's also much easier to look back and see true cause and effect. The truth is that it's really hard to see the true impact of our drug use when we're in it, but when we look back, it becomes sure. very clear. And then we can take that information and make decisions going forward, including whether or not we want to go back to using. And if we want to go back to using, which a lot of my patients say they want to do, but they want to use differently, they want to use less, they want to use in more moderation, they want to have a healthier a relationship with that drug or behavior. So then we talk about you know, creating self-binding strategies. These are physical and metacognitive barriers that we can put between ourselves and our drug of choice to help us moderate use. So it's not just about willpower. It's actually about changing our immediate environment so we're not constantly being triggered. i got to ask this because I know there'll be people listening that feel like this. Can you be more predisposed to addiction than other people? As in, can one just have an addictive personality? Definitely. Um, we don't typically use that language anymore, although I think in some ways it's good language um, but it's definitely true that some people are more vulnerable to the problem of addiction than others, and that the risk of becoming addicted is, is about 50% genetic, which is pretty high um, when you compare it to other mental illnesses. So, for example, if you have a biological parent or grandparent with addiction, you are at increased risk of addiction compared to the general population, even if you're raised outside of that substance-using home. So there's a strong biological correlate to addiction, and we don't exactly know what that is. It's, it's um, for certain complex and polygenic involving multiple different genes. It probably has something to do with um, emotion dysregulation, um, insensitivity to reward, impulse control problems, and inability to delay gratification. Although some people who can delay gratification become seriously addicted. So these are not exclusionary, but um, you know, in a complex way, these are some of the characteristics that are associated with becoming addicted, as well as people who have co-occurring mental illness, are more likely to try substances and also more likely to become addicted. Is it possible that us as hosts, let's say the hosts of addictions, is it possible that we all carry one, two or three let, and they don't have to be extreme, but mild addictions at any one time. Yeah, I think about and, this and too. And that's just part mm. of the human character. So, for instance, as you get older, maybe your sleep patterns change. You might increase your coffee. I mean, coffee, caffeine's an addiction, yep. right? Yeah. And I would imagine that we it's a bucket list for for for, for 70, 80% of the people, right. right? So we're walking around with, with these addictions, which then leads to this other question that, is it that, um, we will just naturally uh, seek out dopamine uh, because it's you know it's centered around uh, giving us some form of, of, of relief or pleasure, um, and because of that, it, it it works it works at these mild addictions. So we never really like all we do all we can do is look for tools or restraints to try and balance our life. But we're always going to be coping with some form of addiction, mild or, or otherwise. Is that fair, Anna? Yeah, or yes. Or have I oversimplified yes, it? Yes, that, that, is, that is fair. And here, here is, I think, a way to understand that, that our brains have evolved over millions of years to approach pleasure 
and avoid pain. It is fundamental to our wiring. It is repeated across species for millions of years of evolution. And it's essentially what's allowed us to survive in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger, which is the world that humanity has lived in for most of human existence. The problem is that we are no longer living in that world. We're no we longer no hunting for food. <laughs> that's right. We're no longer hunting and, and gathering. In fact, we don't even have to get up off the couch, right? It's a couple clicks and a swipe and it shows up on our doorstep. And the food itself is full of sugar and full of fat and full of salt and all the things that you know our brains love. And it is for this reason that I wrote Dopamine Nation to explain to people that our primitive wiring, which was so adaptive for a world of scarcity, becomes a liability in a world of overwhelming abundance, which is the world that we live in now. I just want to look out for my people that feel that they have an addictive personality. Do you, And I'm not talking about myself, by the way, but I'm just saying with what you're saying about genetically predisposed to having addiction problems, would someone listening feel like they got a bit of a handicap then if their parents had those issues? Like... Is there a way to use that, use it positively? So, Do you know what uh -huh. I mean? So um, I think, you know, having a genetic predisposition to addiction is a liability in the modern world. It was probably a huge asset, like when we were, you know, hunter gatherers and yeah. like the person who was willing to work harder and go further for that, you know, little reward was probably leading the whole tribe. Um, but, but now it can be a real liability. But I also want to emphasize that in my book, I specifically talk about people in recovery from addiction as modern day prophets for the rest of us. Because if people with that um, vulnerability can figure out how to live in this dopamine overloaded world, they have acquired some incredible wisdom that the rest of us can really benefit from. Can we find out more about Masturbation Machine Man? <laughs> Tell well, us that what do you story. Want to know? How did yeah. did he he packed up the machine and then he managed to get over it? Is that what happened? Well, so it, so the you know idea. Um, so first of all, let me say tell, tell us the story. Yeah, he's a wonderful patient. He all the patient stories in the book. The patients gave me permission to tell their stories in an you know anonymous way. Um, and you know, this is somebody who developed a, a very serious sex addiction. And yes, he, he uh, built himself, he's a scientist, he built himself a masturbation machine. And I don't want to go into the details too much on, on the show, but, but suffice it to say that um, he, did, he did get into recovery. And after a couple of relapses, he's now been in sustained recovery and doing really well. And he's just such a wonderful man. And he's taught me so much. And um, he has so much you know, wisdom to share with other people. And so that that's really the spirit of the book that, mm. you know, people in recovery have this tremendous wisdom and courage. And many people with addiction who are in recovery will actually say that their addiction has been a blessing in their life and that they're grateful for the addiction because um, their their addiction forced them to get into recovery, which which really forced them to totally rethink the way that they live in ways they would not have done. Um, had they not had the addiction in the first place. Is it possible that addictions that, that you, can, you can completely eradicate, I don't know, heroin, let's say, as an example, versus addictions that are part of life? So a man masturbating, you would assume that he's probably not cutting it out 100%, right? But he's not using some automation process, right? Um, I would imagine that, that the eradication is, is actually easier long term because you haven't got to go back to it. You haven't got to be reminded of it. Um, have you done any thinking or, or analysis on, on, on the idea that like you know, coffee, the occasional coffee is not going to hurt us, right? But we probably don't want to be wired, you know, seven or eight coffees a day every day of, you know, of the year. Um, is there a difference or do we, do we approach it the same way, Anna? Right. So, you know, one of the, the points that I make in, in my book is that um, abstinence is you know, a trial of abstinence, a dopamine fast of 30 days is a good place to start. But ultimately, many, if not most people will want to go back to using their drug of choice in moderation. So it's really important for us to think about how to moderate. Furthermore, even people with severe addictions to things like food, sex, and their smartphones probably will not abstain because you can't abstain from food. That's not consistent with life. 
We think right. of sex right. in healthy ways as a part of a healthy lifestyle. And the smartphone has become so mandatory for engaging in public life and for working that most people can't, even if they wanted to, put it away. So this question of how to moderate has become really central. It's also interestingly, though, coming up, even it's come up in the field of addiction medicine, even when we're talking about things like alcohol, because we used to believe and say that, you know, once you were addicted to alcohol, you, you had to cut it out. You could never drink again. That was the only solution. That's kind of the, the mantra of Alcoholics Anonymous. But what the science has shown is that there is a subset of individuals who, after a period of abstinence from alcohol, are able to go back to using in moderation. Um, which is why I talk a lot about moderation in the book and about self-finding strategies and what, what, what are these people doing who are able to do that? What kinds of techniques and tricks are they using? Because what they're doing, again, also informs the problems of food addiction or sex addiction or you know, device addiction where, let's face it, you know, the, the, we, we don't want to cut those out completely. So then we need to think about, okay, well, what are the categories of this substance or behavior that I can't do. So maybe with food, it's, you know what, I really can't eat sugar. Or maybe with video games, it's, you know, I really can't play League of Legends, just too addictive for me. Or, you know, maybe with sex, you know, having um, sex with my partner is okay, but having sex with myself is not, you know, or maybe having sex with myself, but not using pornography is okay. I mean, you know, everybody's gonna sort of have to experiment and decide for themselves. Um, smartphones, same thing, you know, when is it okay for, for us to use our smartphones and when is it sort of like not okay? And I think that's a really new conversation too and we collectively have to start to think about digital etiquette and culturally, what, what do we wanna say about you know how people can and should be using their devices. When, this is more of a philosophical question, but when do you think that um, the government looks at um, uh, the choices around what drugs people should take, and then says, "Well, hold up, technology's got a lot to answer for." Now, I'm I'm a huge technologist, so I'm a big fan, right? But and and I'd say there's a lot of good as well as there's bad. But there's this feature on iOS, right? On and I'm sure you've got it on Android as well. But um, it says, you know, screen time, right? And it tells you how you've been they using even gamify that. Right. But, but imagine if the go- when does the government say, you know what, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Apple, but we really don't like the idea that, um, that, people are, that my kids are spending four, five, six, seven hours of time. And so what we're going to do is we're going to ask you to put limits uh, that are imposed on, on your device. Now, you know, unless you're actually on a phone call, if, you, if you're actually just operating, maybe you, maybe it cuts off after 15 mm-hmm. minutes or, yeah. or 20 minutes, and you can't you can't go back for half an hour unless you are having a. a Sounds a phone like call. you're in favour of some and, draconian society, bro. Like <laughs> I didn't know that was where you stood. Like, <laughs> well, I, 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 what I what I wonder is that that we we invite other things that are potentially um, you know, can lead to the same kind can transpose to the same outcome in terms of damage, and yet we don't govern it in any way. Uh-huh. And, and technology, first of all, it's been privacy. You know, now we've got uh, you know, addiction. There are other things that are going on with the fact that we're being sold advertising and, 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 and behaviour yeah. features that, 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 that have literally got us addicted. And they're changing social behaviour. Even when you talk yeah. about Uber drivers, like you know where they gamify the, the app to get the workforce to work harder. I remember, I remember being on a plane once, finishing an article. Um, I'm going back years before social media, and and I talked about the concept of screen prison, um, and 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 sadly, um, I think a bunch of us could see that 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 these kind of applications would ultimately control all of our yeah. time, and 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 Facebook had literally just em- just emerged. No one had, had really heard of it at the time. Um, and before that, that, that very initial explosion when it came out, you know, came out of the, you know, when it spread, spread through the universities, at that point, people started to say, is this going to be good or bad? And, and obviously, a lot of things are, are, are a trade-off. But do you, think that, do you think that, is it something that we just have to build this kind of collective um, awareness and, and look at these profits and these case examples, uh, give people additional tools? It seems like addiction 
has become this huge conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you take a very unique position on it, you know, looking at dopamine and, and saying that, look, there's all these different sources, some more natural than others, some more aggressive and mild. And, and, and yet we're all going to be dealing with it. And we're not, we're not, your, your basic premise is we didn't come from that place, right? That's not what we, that's not how we've yeah. evolved. What do you think other people should do? Is it, is it something that we need to do ourselves or uh, should the government do do more to understand this subject, even if it's just around education? Yeah. So, I mean, here's what I think. I think this has to be both a bottom-up and a top-down intervention. My book, Dopamine Nation, is mostly about what we as individuals can do and also what we can think about on a cultural level, on a collective cultural level, and also starting to have these conversations and understand the neuroscience. But that doesn't mean the corporations and the federal government and the school systems are off the hook. They also need to come to the table and think about ways that we can collectively work together to um, limit our inevitable compulsive overconsumption, which is essentially the dark side of successful capitalism. Now, if you look at China, they did just that, right? China came out, the Chinese government came out and said, video games will, um, for anybody under the age of 18, you will only be able to, able to play video games for one hour yeah, a I saw day, that. two yeah. days per week. And otherwise, we're going to cut you off. And they put the burden of responsibility on the man, on the manufacturers of the video games. So you have to come up with a way to cut them off after an hour. So they said, you know, you have to register. You only get an hour. We're going to have facial recognition software so we know it's really you. And I was just on a program, um, you know, a, a TV program in China the, the other week. And already, of course, what they're seeing is young people are buying other people's IDs so that they can register. Yeah. So, of course, there are people, no matter what you do, there's going to be a workaround. But just putting that barrier in place, I can tell you, I, I don't need s studies to show me that parents in China are jumping up and down for joy. Because as a parent... It's almost impossible all on our own to limit, you know, engagement with these online uh, activities for our kids. We need help. We need the government to help us. We need corporations to help us. We need the schools to help us. Schools, I mean, boy, talk about being sold a bill of goods. You know, they, the school has a responsibility to make sure that those kids can read and write and that there are tech-free spaces, that they learn how to problem solve without Googling the answer. I mean, this is really, really important. Um, so I think it's both. You know, it's, it's just like climate change. It's not going to be solved because everybody, you know, uses paper bags instead of plastic bags or cloth bags. We have to do that and we have to walk instead of drive. But the corporations have to do their part. The government has. It's got to come from, you know, from both directions. But I think of this, this top-down approach, uh, there's an awful lot. I think of it back to the, the cigarette lobby years ago where... You know, it was such a battle to just say these things can kill you. You know, you'd get some kind of message on, on the cigarette right. well, pack. Well, here's right? the thing about yeah. cigarettes. So that messaging that cigarettes can kill you, that had a small impact on getting people to quit smoking. But I'll tell you what the big impact was, taxation. When cigarettes were more expensive, people quit Stop. smoking. Wow. And that's the same thing when you think about people say, well, you know, oh, Facebook's so horrible or, you know, social media. And I just feel like saying, well, if you had to pay to be online to do social media and for every half hour you were online, the price doubled. Trust me, your time would go down. I mean, I would like that method if um, all the money we paid went into a pot like Monopoly and we all collected it at the end of the year. I'd be investing. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a great idea. So those are sort of interesting, creative thoughts. Like, you know, because we're not China, right, here in the West. We're, our government is not going to impose limits on video game playing to minors. I just don't see that happening. But what could happen is that we could disincentivize it, certain types of behaviors, and incentivize others monetarily. That's one thing. Or through taxation, as well as, you know, trying to just set plain old well, limits. Well, you've got like the sugar tax that the yeah. UK have just imposed. And, um, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. But the Americans exactly. have a very different attitude towards sugar, which in fact, some of your stuff is illegal over here. Oh, like what? Lucky Charms. Fascinating. I did not know that. Monster Energy Drink as a different recipe over here. Uh, to Interesting. Meet. Is that a problem for Americans? Like, what would you say 
collectively. Yeah, no, Americans, they, yeah. they, want, they want their lucky charms right next to their energy drink. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, that's kind of the American way, right? We, it's sort of still that Wild West mentality. Nobody's going to tell us what to do. Nobody's going to interfere in our personal lives. I mean, it's, it's funny. Um, and yet the same people who don't want the government to interfere in their personal lives are very upset about Facebook and want Facebook to do something different. So you do get these funny paradoxes. I think it's kind of three things, like money, safety, and religion, right? It's like these are things that people, especially if you're particularly religious, it will have the same effect as you're affecting your pocket, right? Or you're going to die tomorrow. Okay, I better do something about it. But there's something above that that kind of drives the education, drives the conversation, and it can work top down or bottom up, and that's your values, right? right? right. Do, we, do, do, we, do we collectively recognize and value uh, that, that, that this is a problem in, in life, whether it be for our children, or do we all understand that we're ultimately um, you're disconnecting from some form of, of, of life that we had 30 years ago because we just don't have the time or because we prefer to spend our time more like goldfish. And I love fish, but, but bottom line is we've got, you know, it's like we've got no attention, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, our, our attention is our attention is another. We haven't talked about attention, but our attention span wanes because of this unbelievable amount of abundance, yeah. right? You know, or go or YouTube. To, you know, it used to be that we loved a movie. Now we love a TV show. Now we love a webisode. Right now we love TikTok. Something is wrong. Right? Yeah, I <laughs> you mean, know? Um, you know, I, I, so the question about religion is is really interesting. I mean, you know, you could argue that from an evolutionary perspective. Religion is um, an adaptive force in human society because religion is a way of getting people to change their behavior from within, right? As opposed to it being a rule-based, externally imposed um, kind of kind of way to, to change people's behavior. And I almost think we need something like that. We kind of need some kind of new religion around um, this overabundance problem. We need a, a new religion of of restraint and humility and a sense that over consuming anything is not just good, not just bad for us, but bad for our relationships, bad for the planet, like, uh, you know, bad with a capital B, like from a values perspective. <laughs> that might be hard because it kind of goes against Western values, which is about being as big as you can. Like, if Yeah, it's... it goes against the kind of narcissistic individualism. Yeah. That has been the hallmark of Western culture, but I think there's it's time for a change. I think we're ready for a change, and I I think more and more people are feeling that also. I think there's a, uh, I wouldn't say Ted Kaczynski comes to mind with the technology manifesto, but we need some form of new, you know, let, let's just put a name on it, abundance manifesto, yeah. because what happens with when with with anything of new growth is you get you get the bad actors that are inside the the the, gen, the general good so a great example is is people on social media uh, you know talking about they can have anything the universe will give them anything this law of attraction you know an abundance and manifesting what you want but the problem with that is it goes completely against all of the other things uh, that that we've experienced through our life and they're centered around technology and the fact that technology can perhaps provide things without any hard work and and so i i wonder um in this i wonder how people ultimately get around this is, is it that some great book catches light or the government you know publishes some best practices that just seem to make common sense that meet with our values i wonder what macro uh, position can be taken or is it going to be something that just is iterated over time people like yourself and are doing good work uh, you're highlighting look here's a problem um, there's a whole range of problems here and we're we're we need to adapt um, is it, it, it feels it feels as complex and potentially more complex than climate change uh -huh. yeah well with this you're talking about people like with climate change, yeah. something there. If you're talking about, right. you're asking people to look yeah. at themselves. Ah, most people don't want to do that. Multi, <laughs> multi, multi layered yeah. variants as yeah. well, right? Whereas there's two two level of variants with climate change, so it's a little easier to. to and at we least still ask. disagree on climate change. Yeah, <laughs> like people are saying they don't exist. I ultimately think that people are already having these conversations. I hope that. My book, Dopamine Nation, will give them a framework to understand 
what's happening, but I think people are already looking around, parents looking around, people looking around at their own lives saying, gee, I'm unhappy, you know, and, I, and I'm even, I'm guilty for feeling unhappy because I have so much, you know, what, what's, what is, what's going on in yeah. my life? I think people are searching for these answers. You know, life has become so much more secular, so religion um, can still be a response to these problems, but for you know our increasingly secular world, especially younger people, it's it's not providing those answers. So I think we're moving towards something collectively in an iterative way. I don't think it's going to be the government publishing like you know the ten best practices or something. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's going to come come through society and culture and and conversations. I'll do a song about um, addiction. That's it. You That's need to do a song. Be. Um, I want to move on to this talking about validation and addict. I think I want to talk about because I was thinking about what I'm addicted to. I'm very hyper aware of balance because um, I've had to learn it. But I want I would say I'm addicted to thoughts, certain thought processes and then requiring yeah. the need for someone to validate me. Um, I know where yeah. it comes from. Because um, I grew up in a more of oppressive upbringing, like um, mm-hmm. psychologically quite traumatic. So you kind of mm-hmm. you crave someone to tell you that you're worth something, right? right and right. and it makes me think about like high performing people generally. Like I know Martin can relate to aspects of this as well, where you he talked about productivity and that comes from somewhere, like a di- because mm-hmm. you're you're almost trying to get away from an idea of self, right? And right. We, like you spoke about athletes like Cristiano Ronaldo, Michael Jordan, who have a compulsion to train hard and succeed and society celebrates that you're a good boy you're a good girl right. if you do that yeah, yeah. and i know i crave that i've only just started to get rid of it uh right. although it's um probably i've gone like various degrees where i'm like well i don't really give a shit what you think anyway <laughs> do you know what i mean <laughs> um and that's also not positive so like it's kind of um you know yeah. So can you be addicted to a process of thinking and even yeah, like addicted yeah. to rumination? I, I, like I want right. to touch on that because they're less tangible, isn't it? Yeah. So let's just even look at sort of um, accomplishments or success or validation or approval. Um, what happens over time is that we need more and more to get the same effect, don't we? Like that, you know, that initial thing online, uh, you know, the first time it's awesome, the second time it's okay, the third time it doesn't even bump our dopamine. Then we need, you know, even a larger audience or more money or more awards. And so I think, you know, you're really hitting on something huge there, which is, you know, this kind of addiction to accomplishments and external validation. And when we recognize that pattern in ourselves, what we can see is that we develop tolerance, but also the come down. Right. Mm. So right after we get that validation, there's, you know, we crash and we go into that dopamine deficit state, often accompanied very oddly by shame, where after this sort of narcissistic self aggrandizement, where we are separated from the crowd and held up, we can very often then experience this inexplicable shame afterwards, you know, which is our dopamine plummeting downward. But I also think is nature's way of trying to bring us back into the fold. If you think about the function of shame, shame is a really powerful emotion that gets us to um, adhere to group norms. And so I think when we have some kind of narcissistic event that's very validating, it's naturally followed by shame because we're supposed to then go back back into the tribe. And so I think it's reasonable to you know deduce from that that this pursuit of of accomplishment and of a sort of narcissistic acclaim is actually a pretty fast pathway to unhappiness. Yep. Because uh, no matter how much we get, it's never enough. But also the huge price to pay is a kind of a shame that we experience because we're separated out, we're not part of the group. Um, and and I know I've, I've struggled with that too, you know, in my own life, you know, even just in my little small academia, right? Um, and it's it's hard to see, but once you see it, you go, yeah, that's kind of crazy. I mean, I know that like after I give a talk, I will kind of go back to the hotel room and like curl up in the in a little fetal position and just feel awful. And it's like that's so weird, you know. Like I did fine. People like the talk. What's going on? But I do think it's that come down combined with the shame. 
And it's worse because everyone says, oh, you should, you must be so happy right now. Right. You must be so happy. You're so And you feel famous. more shame. You have, yeah. Right. And then you feel more shame, right? It's, it's really, really tricky and really insidious. I noticed the, um, the success of music getting to certain levels. Yeah. It would just have no effect for me. Right. Like, it, literally, yeah. I was just like, but if it didn't happen, it would have a major... Like I yes. would have a crash, but then when yeah. it met it, I also was quite nonchalant though at the same time. So yeah. I could totally relate to like the, where you spoke about dopamine not hitting the same right. after mm-hmm. Martin's first cigarette, after the first erotic novel, like when you get, it just, it yeah. just doesn't, is it the same? It's the same. Well, and Jax, I think it's so good, good that you're, you're, you're talking about this because there are so many young people out there who just think, oh, if I only had that level of music success, you know, I would be so happy. And what they don't realize is that, is that it's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that you never get to. And it doesn't mean that, you know, you shouldn't pursue excellence or pursue your art form or pursue your whatever it is, but you have to keep straight who, you know, who you're doing it for and what it's really all about, what the meaning and purpose. And if the meaning and purpose is to be famous or to be rich or, you know, those are, those are really, really empty. Um, if you can find meaning and purpose in, in a different way, um, you know, a way that's of service to others, a way that allows you to, for it not to be about you, but to be about the art form or giving back. I mean, these are all sound so cliched, but they're really, really true. Mm. Then you can escape that narcissistic, that loop of narcissistic self-aggrandizement followed by shame, as well as you know the, the plummeting dopamine that we get when, when we don't get the response that we were expecting, <laughs> which yeah. we know from animal science happens, right? If, if it, we train an animal to know that it presses a lever and it gets a shot of cocaine, if all of a sudden they press the lever and they don't get that shot of cocaine, dopamine levels go way, way down. Yeah, so yeah. It re- you really get you know, thrown into that. See, probably even worse. Right. Yeah. It's even worse. Yeah. It's even worse. Yeah. But some people probably can find meaning in making a lot of money, right? Uh, maybe that, 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 as empty as that sounds, right? I think some people really can. Or more importantly, they nobilize the act by the fact that um, success is defined in units of measurement right. and... Perhaps, or they'll, or they'll say, "Look, I, I, I need that that house or that yacht in order to do better business, so that I can." Or, or I hear it through effective altruism. This idea that, yeah, I make a lot of money, I'm going to give it mm-hmm. away. Well, we'll wait until you actually give it away, <laughs> right? Because you just justified your whole. I mean, look at bro- Tyson Fury. He gave away eight million after his first fight with Deontay Wilder. Yeah, that, that, that's very impressive. The point I was going to make is that I think that recognition and authenticity seem to be something and, and maybe you can speak to this uh, uh, on the psych- psychiatry side when you think about people like it's hard to frame what is this correct representation of human life like what is it that makes things empty and not mm-hmm. empty because I agree like like if you do for instance if I do something that doesn't feel uh, authentic in myself mm-hmm. now all of a sudden I'm 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 realizing that I'm not uh, uh, operating normal with, around people, right? Because I'm not, I'm having, I'm concerned or maybe I'm vulnerable. Yeah, I'm, uh, this is not an everyday thing, uh, but, but it's only natural. You say, this doesn't feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. So I'll put a guard mm. up, right? And it seems to me that there's a correlation with success, Jax. If you think about in my world of, mu- um, of film or, or technology or, or music, your, your world, that the people that do really well, maintain authenticity they also maintain balance mm-hmm. or they appear I think you to mean do well right? over they a seem- long time because i think you can do well and then it crashes which we see a lot like yeah, sustainability yeah. sustainability what i'm saying is if they have problems which i'm sure they do because i don't i've never met anyone in life that that can maintain having a problem-free life but but, but what i'm saying is the 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 obvious things that happen like i.e the the creative desire wanes uh, the ability to keep climbing and going crazy. I think of the Kanye syndrome, right? Where we'll do anything to to add more uh, to add more populace. It seems that the, that it comes back to these ideas that people can recognise your authenticity. Well, it sounds like you're equating authenticity with staying in balance, keeping this pleasure pain balance mm. in balance. And I am, I am indeed. Yeah. yeah. 
And and so the question is, well, how you know how do we do that? And I I, I think you know the the key thesis of Dopamine Nation is that in a in a dopamine overloaded world, um, we really need to strive for a new asceticism. Um, we need to intentionally restrain from indulging ourselves in excess, and we need to invite painful things into our lives in order to keep balance in a world that's out of balance. And that's the, the central hypothesis. One of the healthy adaptive ways to get dopamine is to press on the pain side of the balance, because when we do that, it triggers our own body's homeostatic re-regulating mechanisms to upregulate dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. How do we press on the pain side of the balance? Ice water baths, exercise, yeah. creative, effortful endeavors like making music, actually writing the music, other creative endeavors, reading hard books, exposing ourselves to things that are anxiety-provoking or hard, telling the truth and nothing but the truth as we go through the course of our day, um, sitting with our shame, sitting with our anxiety. Before you go, um, yeah. Anna, yeah. Uh, I want to ask you, and this is objective, by the way, I don't think this, because I do think this is super important, um, this idea of dopamine and our addictions, um, but we are also in a world that's addicted to being better. Yeah. Yeah. And every couple of years, there's a new idea. So re in recent years, there's mindfulness, like well, right. wellness industries are just, they, they create these ideas where if you meditate every day, you're going to just be the happiest person <laughs> in the world. But we all know it's layered, right? Right. So, but they sell you this. It's a blog mm -hmm. post. And I've yeah. seen blog posts about dopamine mm -hmm. fasting. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously I'm listening to you because you're a psychiatrist. And that's why I, say, I think it's important that you're uh, an MD. Everyone knows that. So when you talk about it's not the same as BuzzFeed posting about a mm -hmm. dopamine fast. Mm -hmm. Right. Thank you. But <laughs> yeah. But is this just a fad? Um, so, I mean, if you, I, I feel like Dopamine Nation is, is not just some gimmicky thing about dopamine fasting. You know, I, I'm, I'm, Dopamine Nation relies on 25 years of my clinical experience treating patients and seeing what works for them, combined mm -hmm. with the neuroscience, as well as, you know, a certain level of, like, hypothesis-driven sociology about how we should be living now. And I think the fundamental message of Dopamine Nation is not even really about dopamine fasting. It's about acknowledging that life is hard and that the pursuit of pleasure for, for its own for sake sure. ultimately leads us to experience more pain. And really asking us to shift as a culture around this expectation that we should be happy all the time. Um, you know, that we should um, be accomplishing all these things and really asking us to think collectively about you know, how should we define the good life in a life worth living, um, you know, in this kind of crazy, brave new world. Don't cry after this lecture, please. I'll try not to. It, it has happened before. <laughs> We're sending you hugs from, from Martin from New York the and me from the UK. We're sending you hugs. Like, it's going to be cool. I love it. <laughs> <laughs>